want to get service, selection, and price so low. The record archive is the place to go. Welcome to episode 67. Welcome. <laughs> our first take was both of us talking over each other. Yeah, at the same time. And our second take was us looking <laughs> blankly mm. into each other's eyes. Yep. <laughs> okay, so cool episode today. Yes. Let's get right to it. All right. First, I want to wish you a happy moon day. What's moon day? It's National Moon Day. It is? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well... Thank you. You're welcome. Happy Moon Day to you, too. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. (laughs) A couple weeks ago, we had Dan Lilker Mm -hmm. here, and he chatted with us, and um, we couldn't get through all of our questions, so he graciously agreed to return for part two. Yep. So we're going to get right to it. All right. So we're going to hear our song first and then go into the, the conversation. Yes. We are going to start with blurring with corpse rat. Yeah, I can't 
Welcome back. Welcome. Well, thank you. Glad to be back. Thank you for doing part two. No worries. And can part you, one. You can hear me good? We can hear you well, well. I should say, with well. the proper grammar. We can hear you very well. Yep. Here's to blackened chicken. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought about the term after you left. Cupcake wrappers. We called it holders. Oh, Having worked at a party supply store for years, I don't know where I'm going with this, but, you know, <laughs> we had a lot of different ones, you know, because every pattern, you know, if it was like, you know, SpongeBob, then we would have cupcake wrappers for that. And uh, it was just uh, brought me back to a shitty job. <laughs> Good save. <laughs> yeah. That was beer related. <laughs> So if we could start with, uh, we have one SOD type of question. Okay. If we could start with that. Um, so for SOD, it seems like you enjoy playing the SOD stuff in different incarnations of the band. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, was there a time that it frustrated you how popular it was with fans, considering this is from what I've read, maybe I'm wrong, but uh, that it was something you guys didn't take super seriously in the beginning and just kind of put together like maybe whimsical i wouldn't say we were frustrated i think it was i for one just thought i was more amused by the fact that it got that popular because uh -huh. when you start something with the intention of just we're gonna have a little fun play a little you know fast noisy music and have obnoxious lyrics just for a joke, just to piss off a few people. And then all of a sudden it gets huge. You're like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> that was really it. You know, like, and so in other words, the effort we put into it and the attitude we had about it did not, wasn't proportion, proportionate to how big it got. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. We didn't say, oh, we're going to do this thing and it's going to be fucking huge. We're going to shatter this and that and have this killer guitar sound and blah, blah, blah. We just said, fuck it. Let's just make some, play some hardcore and have some fun and have some lyrics that'll wind up people in the hardcore scene because they deserved it. And then <laughs> it got huge. We were just more like amused than anything. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's really what that was about. Um, we didn't, really know how people were going to react to it and there were various reactions and uh yeah it was just like hmm didn't think that was going to happen really that was all i wasn't annoyed or anything it was just more uh didn't know how to think about it really mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. yeah it was just unexpected mm -hmm. i think mm -hmm. so you weren't uh so you were were surprised that maybe that became so popular compared to something you put a lot of effort into? Maybe maybe overshadowed some of that stuff. Well, did you ever think what what the fuck happened here? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was kind of funny because at the same time I was playing a nuclear assault, mm -hmm. but when we did that SOD record, that was still when Nuclear Assault, we were finding our legs, we were getting our lineup together mm -hmm. and shopping for labels. So we weren't at that level anyway, but <clears throat> maybe with Anthrax, there was maybe 
some dudes in the band. I mean, you'll, you did notice that SOD came out, and then all of a sudden, it was over. I mean, I could say this, you know, 35 years later, it's because other dudes in Anthrax got a little pissed that all of a sudden this joke bands became popular, mm -hmm. and when a certain member of the band was doing his guitar solo live, and people were shouting SOD during it, <laughs> and he would shake his head and get mad about it, and that caused issues with them, so... To generalize it, yeah, there might have been some people, peripheral people around the band, in mm. other words, other members of Anthrax, who were kind of like, what the fuck, where did this come from? You know, why is this doing so well? Yeah. And we didn't have an answer for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just like, I don't know, we just decided to have some fun and play some music, and we had no idea it was going to get that popular, and um, yeah, it caused some issues, but that was not intentional. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was... Right. uh. For me, it was just about having fun, playing some fast music, pissing off a few people because <laughs> it was, you know, the thing to do. There were people on the hardcore scene that were uptight and needed a little dressing down. And uh, I might have mentioned this last time, but it was the Bonnie Raitt philosophy, which is let's give them something to talk about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's all that was. Mm -hmm. um, I I've read that you, I think you said that you were welcomed into the hardcore scene as someone coming from like the metal side. Is that? Yes, I was. Yeah. But that is also because people knew I wasn't trying to exploit anything or, you know, wear all the right shirts or be hanging out with all the right people. Mm -hmm. I was just exploring a genre of music that I found really interesting. Mm -hmm. And when John Connolly and I would go down to CBGB's, uh, they could see that, uh, we were being earnest about it and we're absorbing everything. And, you know, hardcore was somewhat ideological genre where they wanted to make sure you were down or whatever. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I didn't really give a shit what anybody thought. I just was checking out some music and I, w I didn't care if people judged me because I just don't give a shit what anybody thinks. And yeah. that's where, how I've gotten where I am today. <laughs> But yeah, um, we were welcomed because people could tell that it was genuine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We weren't like, oh, let's hang out in the hardcore scene and... Give everyone shit. Right. Yeah. Or just, you know, be in the right place at the right time, hanging out with people. I mean, thank God there wasn't Facebook and shit back then. Yeah. 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 But yeah, people in the hardcore scene realized that, you know, if I was down at CBGB's, it's because I enjoyed the bands. And not because it was the cool thing to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that became obvious if I was there every fucking Sunday. You know, it wasn't just, oh, let's go down and hang out with the cool kids. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. It wasn't contrived. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. I know we've talked in the past on the podcast about, like, the maybe more so in the past, there was, like, a, a divide between hardcore and metal. And it's it was cool to hear your perspective on that you didn't experience that because of how you came at it well yeah there were people in the hardcore scene that were suspicious that people in the metal scene were trying to exploit it mm -hmm. and they had reason to do that but uh yeah it's really all about 
if I had just gone down to CBGB's once a year or once every six months, like, hey, I'm hanging out with the hardcore kids and didn't even give a shit about the bands I was watching, but I was just doing it because it was the cool thing to do, they would have seen right through that. Yeah. But if you're going down there every Sunday and checking out bands and eventually playing with those bands, they realized that you actually cared about it. Mm. And if you didn't, you wouldn't have been there every week. Yeah. It's like, there would have been a point where you would have realized if I was just trying to impress people or exploiting it. Mm-hmm. And no, I was just really into it and wanted to check out the bands and people could sense that. They could sense that there was a genuine interest and not just some exploitative thing. Yeah. And... When 90s black metal came around, it was the same thing because it was this ideological genre. If you're going to be into this, then you got to believe in the cause, even though most of those people did it. Right. Just, but, you know, putting on some facade, I don't know. That was the ironic thing that, you know, people who acted like they were into it, 10 years later, they were just doctors and lawyers and had kids and didn't give a shit anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the... Sometimes there's an expression that empty barrels make the most noise, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, that's and, true. Mm-hmm. So was the exploited your kind of entry into the punk hardcore stuff? I was into the Ramones before that. Mm-hmm. If you want to talk about you know, like separating genres, like the Ramones obviously weren't a hardcore band. They mm-hmm. didn't play fast until they did that one song, Animal Boy, and even that sounded kind of stilted. But... um. <sighs> I would say that The Exploited was more like a fluke. I saw that years before in 82. And when they played fast, we just thought it was funny. We were like, what the fuck are these guys doing? (laughs) And watching all the people, we were up in a balcony watching everyone slam around. But as far as taking it seriously, that would have been more bands like Discharge internationally and Agnostic Front locally, being a New York dude. Um where that became the whole thing where those guys playing fast and having lyrics that were real were both profoundly influential in what we did. Oh, there you are. (laughs) Cat. (laughs) Exploited, that was more like, this is interesting, let's go check this out. Mm -hmm. And we just stayed in the balcony where we're safe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think seeing them maybe planted a seed that became what SOD like bridged in the future? In a way, it wasn't like we didn't come out of that going, holy shit, that was killer, we Mm. have to do this. Mm -hmm. It was more like in the back of your brain, like that was interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It had an influence on you in some way, right? Yeah, Yeah. but it wasn't profound. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like we walked out of the Great Gildersleeves going, this is what we have to do, Mm -hmm. you know? But it was like, once I got into more stuff like that, I remembered that as like the germination of it, sure. But it wasn't an obvious thing like where we said, we have to do this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I saw Nuclear Assault play with the Exploded in 2015 in a festival in Hungary, and I was talking to the bass player about that, going, I saw you guys before I even knew what the fuck you guys were about. <laughs> huh. And he was laughing, going, oh, well, cool. Hope you enjoyed it, bro. <laughs> With a Scottish accent, so you're like, huh? Hope you enjoyed it, bro. Uh. I think that's a good segue into Heavy Metal Steve's question. Right, I have one more question before that, though. Okay. 
So you mentioned the ideological um, kind of beliefs of hardcore in general and black metal. What what would you say is more ideological, New York hardcore or true Norwegian black metal? Or is that comparing apples to oranges? I would say in their own ways. Or invisible oranges. In- Sorry. <laughs> Bad joke. Oh, what did you say? I said, or invisible oranges. Oh, invisible oranges, right. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Also called Count Your Fingers by Fenris. <laughs> um, well, I went through both of those periods where I had people judging me, like, oh, are you really down? And like I said, a lot of people saying that were just fucking acting out. Mm-hmm. But... um I think it would be easier to be not just New York hardcore or hardcore in general. It'd be easier to live up to those ideals, mm-hmm. which is you know thinking for yourself or not eating meat or whatever, than the black metal stuff, which is about the esoteric occult and you know worshiping this or that. I think, I mean, I know by being friends with people like the bass player of Mayhem that a lot of that stuff was really just show yeah mm-hmm. a lot of stuff was just being really influenced by venom and hellhammer mm-hmm. and acting really grim and dark where i think hardcore i think those people took that stuff a little more seriously but there were a lot of people on hardcore you know who just especially the younger kids when they got into it who acted like they were into stuff whether it was straight age or vegan or whatever mm-hmm. and they just were very susceptible and you know impressionable kids and they jumped into that and i don't i think at the end of the day you're gonna be nice to me now (laughs) there's a cat down here (laughs) Um, no i mean it was different i think in black metal i think half of one percent of the people who ascribe to those ideals we're really into it. And that's like the dudes in Watane. Mm-hmm. They're, they're fucking real. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Narganas from Enthroned. There's, there's people who are really strongly into that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then there's the rest of them who just acted like it because it was cool. Yeah. 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 You know? I'm an atheist. I'm an anti-Christian atheist, but I'm an atheist. I don't worship anybody. Right. Mm-hmm. But... I will use some of that stuff, those symbols, because it's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And it's fun. Yeah. It's fun (laughs) because there are so many Christians out there in the world who just, I'm not talking about the people who just pray and they go to bed and go about their daily lives, but the ones who, who wield it, the ones who, you know, protesting outside abortion clinics, you know, I want to give Mm -hmm. those people migraines. So. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So I will pretend I'm something I'm not if it scares them and makes them uncomfortable because they deserve that because they're shitty people. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Heavy Metal Steve submitted a question. He wants to know about Brandon being in Hemlock and Ceremonium. He wants to know if you ever saw them live and if there were 
if there was any tension between the fan bases in New York City. My old friend Brandon Diaz. Yeah, well, um, when Hemlock formed, there weren't many people in New York who were down with what we were doing. So we took a couple of people from a very evil death metal band called Ceremonium. And... How do I phrase this? We weren't trying to be snotty or anything, but, you know, there were only certain people who we knew who were down. And you had to be down or fuck you, you know? Yeah. So, um... There was certainly no tension between people who liked Ceremony and people liked Hemlock. I'm not sure where what he's getting at. If he's talking about a thrash dude like me playing black metal, I only got shit on a couple from assholes on message boards who hide behind their names, and that was well, of course, yeah. But with Brandon, um, he was loved that dude. Fucking very talented dude. It was a fucking pleasure to play with him. And him and Tom played at Ceremonium, which played um, very evil death metal with Doom, a lot of Doom mixed yeah. into it, which was good because it made it different because if they just played straight up, you know, gory death metal, first of all, that wasn't grim enough. We all thought bands like Cannibal Corpse were fucking weak because... You could go to a horror movie and watch somebody's head get ripped off, you know? Yeah. Of course, you could also go to a horror movie and watch Linda Blair, so... (laughs) (laughs) But I think the point I'm making is that um, there was no... Because playing black metal in New York City in the 90s was such an anomaly that uh, it wasn't much different than playing grim death metal. So there was no issue there. So I think his question was really about if there was a divide between, or not a divide, but like if there was any tension between the fan bases of Ceremonium and Hemlock. We didn't have fan bases. No? Okay. <laughs> there were 10 well, there's your, there's your answer. <laughs> right. Fan bases. My God. I'm give a shit. Um, okay, so after Cliff's untimely death... I think rumors were kind of circulating and people were buzzing. Like, no. <laughs> I know what you're going to ask. I, <laughs> I don't want to play in a band with a drummer like Lars. Well, so my question was going to be, what do you think that would have looked like and why wouldn't you have lasted? <laughs> it would have been extremely temporary because the thing about after Anthrax, when I formed Nuclear Assault, and not because I'm a control freak, but... I wanted to play in a band where I had a little more control. Creative. Creative. Yeah. And had I joined Metallica, that would have been something where I would have been on some salary and it's not about the money, but it's more about, it would have been some job. Yeah. And uh, do you hear any bass on Injustice for All? I don't. I would have been fucking furious. (laughs) Yeah. You know? Yep. Um, that wouldn't have been a good fit. And I did get asked about that a lot outside of CBGBs, believe me. Yeah. You know, oh, Dan, you're going to join Metallica? You know? No. <laughs> no. And uh, actually, James was asked about that by somebody. They said, like, oh, you, what about Lilker? And he went, nah. <laughs> and uh, that was fine. I don't think that would have worked out. I would have been great, you know, making a few bucks for a couple of months. Sure. 
but it would not have been a good fit because I and I understand why it didn't last with Jason either eventually yeah you know because it's more about it's a business yeah and for me playing music is more about a creative thing and it would have stifled you I think Metallica would have stifled you yeah and it wouldn't have worked it wouldn't have worked if I would have stayed on an anthrax either yeah yeah so there you go and that's kind of why SOD formed just perfect to get all that out of our systems <laughs> how did you connect with Holy Moses I think there was one of those conventions in New York, like the New Music Seminar or CMJ or one of those things where people would come from throughout the world to these conventions because there was a lot of publicity and blah, blah, blah. And Sabina Klassen, I forgot how we originally got in touch through a mutual friend or something. Hey, I'm going to be in New York. I'm coming to this convention and, you know, we should meet out and have some beers or something like that. Somebody got us in touch. Probably might have been Holger from Rock Hard Magazine or something like that. Like, oh, you know, my friend Sabina is coming over. What the fuck are you guys looking at? Oh, and there's the picture yeah. of me and Sabina. Sorry. Behind oh, okay. the scenes stuff going on here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is a picture of me and Sabina from Obscene Extreme a few years ago, kind of our reunion. But uh, we first met in 93. She was coming over to some convention. I remember now, she had a friend named Doris from Vienna who was a journalist. So somebody, like maybe from Rock Hard Magazine, got in touch with me. Or, hey, you know, uh, Sabina and her friend Doris from Vienna are coming over. They're coming to New York. I'm like in a pseudo-German accent I am talking with now to say this. <laughs> but uh, anyway, they were like, yeah. Uh, and uh, she would like to hook up at some metalheads and hang out and have a few beers. I said, sure, give her my address or number, which she did back then before the internet. And... Uh, we uh, hung out, you know, just hung out, by the way. And uh, um, we kept in touch. And even after she was kind of out of Holy Moses and it was just Andy Klassen, her former husband, who was just the main dude in the band who was singing, it was a couple of, a year or so after that, got in touch and said, hey, you know, uh, we'd love if you wanted to come out and be part of the next record we actually have some lineup issues and we don't even have somebody uh, playing bass on this and i was in england mixing with uh brutal truth when we did the need to control record our second record on eric we did the basic tracks in new york but it was mixed after a tour we did in england in leeds I think it was after that long fucking two-month tour we did with Pungent and Macabre. But the point is, we were in northern England, and we were going to be mixing this record. But Earache wasn't going to pay for everyone to stay at hotels the whole time. You don't need the whole band to mix the record. So we're just going to get one double room for two dudes. And I was like, excuse me, that's fine with me because mixing's boring. Because that's when triggers, that's when the trigger technology for drums had just come out. So when I realized that I wasn't going to be around for the mixing stage of this record, but I was still going to be in 
overseas. I was talking to Sabina or maybe Andy and they said, well, shit, dude, if you're going to be overseas and you would like to be on this record as a, you know, a member or a producer or help write songs, come out, come over to Germany and you just change your flights around so you could fly out of Frankfurt later, you know, which was easy back then. Yeah. Instead of flying out of London on the 18th, I'm going to fly out of Frankfurt on the 29th as long as you arrange it a month in advance and move the shit around, it works. So I remember being in England at the beginning of that mixing session with Colin Richardson. They had event, the triggers were around then, and I was about to leave for Germany. And I was like, so what are you doing now, Colin? And he goes, oh, well, we got about 300 different kick drum sounds we're going to check through. And I was like, I think that's my taxi. I have to go. <laughs> <laughs> and it was. And I flew to Paderborn, Germany, which was such a small airport, there was no customs. Really? Yeah. This is way before 9-11. And I flew from, I don't know, fucking Leeds or Bra I don't remember, somewhere, you know, some airport, Manchester. Manchester's an airport up there. I think I went from Manchester to Paderborn. And Andy met me there, and we just got off some puddle jumper, and there was the 10 other people on the plane, and uh, I got my stuff and just walked right out like you were flying from Texas to L.A. Huh. I was like, no customs? He goes, no, it's a very small airport. And he goes, but you didn't have to worry about uh, bringing anything to smoke because he had a golf ball-sized piece of hash. <laughs> so <laughs> that made everything better. But, <laughs> and that's how I ended up doing that. I might be missing a couple of details, but there you go. I got to go shit in the urinal. Let's hear The Dread of Our Becoming by Overlord Exterminator. <laughs> Yeah! 
you mentioned in the past, I think it was a, an interview maybe 15 years ago about that it would be fun to play some stoner rock. Has that ever come to be, or are you still thinking about that? That never happens because ultimately I always like playing fast, so I'd get bored. Mm-hmm. There'd be a time where I would, I would really have to discipline myself to do that. You know, eventually I would just... It would become uh, kind of dull for me. Mm-hmm. So that never happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not ruling it out, but it would probably have to be more something where somebody else had everything written already and I would just kind of come along and jam. But yeah, I don't think I could do that from the get-go and do it. It's enjoyable to listen to, but ultimately I get bored. Yeah. yeah. With the tempo. Mm-hmm. So probably not. Got you. Got you. Do you have any uh, favorites, like sleep or anything like that? I like sleep a lot. Uh, sleep's cool. Um, older monster magnet stuff. Mm-hmm. Even though that's also, you know, kind of like hard rock or yeah. rock or yeah. whatever like that. But uh, They kind of bridge it a little bit, though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Bongzilla. Oh, yeah. Bongzilla's oh, cool. Yeah. I remember yeah. them. Bong. Sure. <laughs> you know, just anything that makes you want to fucking rip a bong. <laughs> How about Bong Tower? Who? Bong Tower. Oh, we love Bong Tower. You yeah. ever heard of Bong Tower? Oh, we'll have to play it for yeah. you before you guys It's good stuff. It's really good. Yeah, yeah anything that makes you think of uh, fucking castles and <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> I had my friend back in New York who used to cop weed off. He used to he played doom metal and he called black metal music castle music. Huh. That was great. <laughs> I'd be like, you know, fucking Abacore, he'd go, oh, yeah, castle metal. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that makes sense in a way. Yeah. <laughs> he was always high, so he was very <laughs> come up with a funny expression. <laughs> Have there been any projects um in the works or thought about that just never came to be? I'm sure there's a shit ton, actually. Now well, that not I asked that seriously. Question. Like stuff where you talk about things you're going to do but never get off the ground because you're all stoners like me yeah. and Burke. <laughs> like, uh, I've always had this funny name for a fucking really noisy grind band that me and Burke were going to do that was going to be called Penis Christ Superstar. <laughs> <laughs> but It's got a nice ring to it. Yeah. And... uh we we're thinking of doing that, and that would be like extreme grinds, but also with like noise samples. But then we'd forget about it, <laughs> and then think about it a year later and laugh over a beer. <laughs> um, no, not really. Um, as I age, I guess maybe I get lazy, and you know, I have my back catalog, but I have the means to record whatever I want at home. I know how to program stuff, and eventually. I'll do another song with my little black metal bands, but I can't do it now because it's July, you know, but... Um, it's too warm out? Yeah, yeah, you have to be inspired, Yeah, you know. Yep. Every snowflake is another 16th note. Got you. You know? <laughs> so, Everything has to be dead. Yeah, and cold. Um, but, I mean, I used to do more home recording, but I have to be inspired. Yeah. And if I'm not inspired, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. You know, I'm not doing this to get rich, whatever. 
I do it because I want to be, create something, and if I don't feel like creating something, I don't. And that's all there is to it. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty much how you are, too. Yeah. You go through extreme phases of like staying up until 3 o'clock in the morning yeah. recording and then going three years without recording anything. Yeah. But the difference is I only create garbage. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Even when the inspiration starts, it comes out as shit. <laughs> well, you know. You want to be self-effacing, that's your thing. <laughs> that's what I do. Um, so what, you kind of started in the, in the music business or music industry um, pre-internet, and now it's kind of deep into the internet. And this might be speculation. Maybe it's the same answer for both, but what, what do you think is the best and worst thing to happen to the music business since you started the best and worst could it be the internet well the internet definitely has its ups and downs Mm -hmm. i mean the internet it's great as far as and this is going to be the same answer but the good and the bad side almost but it made it much easier for bands to promote themselves you used to have to actually go fucking take duct tape and flyers and go out to a fucking telephone pole where you're going to get a splinter Mm -hmm. and (laughs) seriously and promote your stuff or and now all people you have to do is make a facebook event you could put your stuff out on Bandcamp to promote it or whatever it's going to be next year and the whole process of recording back in the day you had to go to an analog studio you couldn't do everything yourself now you can use Pro Tools, and then you could take all your shit and mix it at home, and then market it and put it right out on Bandcamp, which is good and bad. It's good if you know what the fuck you're doing, but there's no quality control. Yeah. It used to be that these labels, like Combat and Roadrunner back in the day, the guys who ran those labels might not have been the most fierce fans, but they would not sign a band if they didn't think they were good because they didn't think it was a good product. They could say, why are we going to sign this band? We already have Exodus. This band sounds exactly like Exodus. Nowadays, a band could just sound exactly like the the bands they're into and release it. And, you know, people would be like, oh, that's killer. It's like, and I'm not talking shit about Municipal Waste or anything, by the way. You know, (laughs) because there were bands that took their influences, like Nuclear Assault and DRI, and uh, kind of, uh, but they did it. You know, 15 years later, and it was refreshing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, back to your question about it. With the internet, because um, that's not really like, you know, home recording. That's another whole thing. Right. But, you know, uh, what am I trying to say here? I'm not even sure. Just uh, the fact that uh, how people you know, over-opinionated people on message boards. And some people worry about that too much as artists. Mm -hmm. They worry too much about the reaction to something instead of just, maybe it's insecurity. I don't know. I've never been like that. I know exactly what the fuck I'm doing and why I'm doing it and when I'm going to do it. And if people don't like it, I don't give a shit because you know what? I'm doing what the hell I want. And that's what matters to me. But I think the pervasiveness of message boards and all the stuff like that, some people might get too insecure and worry too much about the reaction or something. Yeah. And that might be internet-based. Because it used to be you got a bad review in a magazine. Right. 
And there were times back in the 90s I would get extremely annoyed because Brutal Truth, which was a noisy fucking grindcore band, as you know, would get bad reviews in big magazines by some dude. You look at the dude's name. Oh, you know, Jonathan blah, 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 didn't like us. He flipped 30 pages later, and they would have all the journalists' top 10. This dude's top 10, there was nothing anywhere near what we were fucking yeah. were playing. Yeah. He, he liked fucking Limp Biscuit and blah, mm. blah, blah, or, or not even that, but just, just stuff that was inapplicable to what we were doing. And yeah. I was thinking, why is this fucking guy reviewing our record when he obviously his musical taste isn't anything near that? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And the internet kind of, it was like that times 150 because everybody had an opinion immediately. Mm. Yeah. And I think maybe some people worried about that too much. Yeah. So that was kind of a negative thing. The instant, inst- instantaneous reaction from anybody and anybody could have their own blog and YouTube and whatever. So I hope that's a fulfilling answer. It's <laughs> a very good answer. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Do you think that different cultures react differently to music? Cultures meaning internationally? Yeah. 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 Not like genres, but like, like say, here compared Europe, to... Europe, Asia. South America or something. Oh, I would say definitely. I think South America, you got some extremely passionate, really passionate people. It might be... With their upbringing and Central America and South America, there's a lot more political. There's a lot more stuff going on where they're fighting for their existence mm-hmm. under oppressive regimes or yeah. stuff like that. Yep. And their music is a lot more, you know, it gets them through the day without wanting to stab somebody. Where, you know, in America, it's like, it's not part of the struggle. There, it's like... Uh, those people know every lyric to every song because that's their lifeline. Mm-hmm. And I heard a story. I don't know if it's true, but I heard a story that in Colombia, some dude rolled up to a metal show, a death metal show with a Pantera shirt and was stabbed to death. And um, in Europe, it's a little less than that. It's That's like eight instead of ten. Mm-hmm. Um, more passionate. About, Americans are a little more spoiled, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, Cannibal Corpse is coming through again or something like that. In Europe, the promoters and the people, they will treat you a little better and you know, make sure you're comfortable where you're cacking a puke. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, Japanese, it's also a distance thing. The further you're coming, the more people appreciate it. So if we're playing in Chile, if we're playing in Santiago, Chile, or Tokyo, Japan, that means more than playing in Cleveland mm-hmm. for an American band because you've traveled this great distance and they really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, some of the cultural stuff has to do with how far you've come to do it, but some of it just has to do with the environment mm-hmm. where Americans have no idea what people from Chile who had a dictatorship until 1992. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, not the whole time before that, but I know people who grew up under Pinochet. Mm-hmm. I know people who grew up under Eastern European communism for whom, you know, going to buy a Sodom record was risking fucking getting thrown in jail. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So some of the passion might come from the fact that, you know, they had to fight for what they did, whereas spoiled Americans could just stroll into a store and buy something. Yeah, yeah. 
Makes sense. So was there any point in your career that for whatever reason you considered or thought about leaving the music industry? Well, no, not leaving the music industry, but making a career move maybe, Mm -hmm. which I did. Um, It does get you down after a while when the whole ideological thing, when you start playing music, you're doing it because you love it and you want to do it. And eventually you end up on a label or in a band where things have taken a turn where how did I get here? Now we're just a product on a shelf or, you know, we have to have a contractual obligation to have a record out by September when I don't feel like writing music right now. And I don't want to, you know, do something I don't want to do, but yeah, there was a point where, yes. And, uh, I did actually make a conscious effort as my lovely wife reminded me that, uh, (laughs) um, but that's also more about, getting there which was more about the airline industry Mm -hmm. where when i grew up and lived in new york city you flew direct wherever you were going whether it was fucking tokyo or london or sao paulo Mm -hmm. and um when i moved up here one of the um can't think of the word but the results of that was Mm -hmm. that if i would fly to Europe or Japan, I would have to go to another hub here in the States first and then make your connecting flight. But it wasn't just that. The airline industry in general has just gotten much shittier than it was 20 years ago Mm because I remember, and there wasn't always a mechanical issue (laughs) or the flight is late because the flight attendants, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. It's as it became more of a conglomerate and all these airline industries and they would just get shitty and lazy mm-hmm. you know when it was like one company controlling five airlines they would just i rem- remember that it just wasn't as bad as it used to be and it's not just me being old and grumpy or <laughs> living in a secondary city what they would classify and not being able to fly direct it's just getting where you're going with all your shit on time became the exception not the rule yeah and that really started getting me down and i would torment my poor wife i would get grumpy <laughs> in airports you know this is like 12 13 years ago and you know i was smoking cigarettes then i would just be fucking get really mad because our flights delayed eight hours and mm-hmm. i would just get furious and i'm thinking this is not me mm-hmm. what am i doing here why am i doing this and uh yeah that had a profound influence on not wanting to tour anymore. But even before that, as far as leaving the industry, it was more frustrations back then with being turned into a product. That was my original point, but certainly the traveling, you know, it shouldn't be a struggle. I've done shows where I arrived in a a festival in fucking Slovenia where I tried to fly out on a Wednesday night to get there Friday, mo- you know, Thursday morning, but my flights got fucked up. So now I got to go back home, start the whole thing 24 hours later. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. So then you just have to try to sleep on the plane. You're not going to get to the festival site 24 hours earlier and sleep in a hotel bed and get all refreshed and wander down to breakfast and then go down to the venue. Now you just got to fly straight there and get there the next day. 
So if there's one baby crying on that plane, yep. there goes your window. For and there always sleep. is, right? <laughs> now you're getting there and you're a fucking zombie. I played that festival. It was called Metal Days or Metal Camp in Tolman, Slovenia. It was beautiful. It was in the mountains. But I was completely delirious when I played that festival because I was on three hours of sleep. Yeah, that sucks. And that's not fair to the people watching us. It's not fair to me because I want to fucking enjoy it. Yep. And I remember my phone charger fell out of my pocket on on stage, and some guy ran up and put it back in my pocket. One of the one of the fucking guys working for it, and I'm like, "That's where we're at now. I can't. Even, <laughs> shit's falling out of my pockets. I'm fucking delirious, you know." Somebody's like, "Hey, you want to smoke some weed?" I'm like, "I'd love to, but then I'll just fucking pass out." Yeah. So I was resentful about that, <laughs> you know. So yeah, the traveling certainly had a influence on my growing disgust with things and mm-hmm. once you get where you're going it's fucking great but yeah getting there was became such a struggle yeah oh yeah peru last year fucking <clears throat> having to play a show after getting delayed god knows how many hours 48 or 60 or whatever going straight to the venue at one in the morning and playing a show you don't have your shit with you your suitcase didn't show up your bass didn't show up you got to play some weird white bass <laughs> <laughs> at one in the morning. And, uh, yep, uh, shit that happens that it's hard to explain if you haven't been there. You know, telling the story just doesn't quite cut the mustard as far as living it. Uh, I think he gets it. I mean, he doesn't travel internationally, but he has... He had to travel for work like 90% yeah, of the time. I can't compare it to what you're talking about. Yeah, but not at all, but yeah, he, it made him fucking It did, miserable. and it was constant bullshit, like constant mechanical problems. Missing con- flights, the, missing the, layovers. The crew was always fucking late. I'm like, what What the fuck's happening here? Constantly. Yep, and uh, just imagine that if there's 20,000 people who are waiting for you to play a show the next yeah. day. Yeah. yeah. And you show up. With three hours of sleep because of the crying baby. <laughs> and, and you have you to have pretend to you're happy. You got to rock out. You, <laughs> yeah, right? you got to fucking act like, hell yeah, fucking, we're <laughs> like here. You're we're on heaven. Rock out. Yeah. And you're not going to disappoint those people, even if your charger's falling out of your pocket <laughs> while you're playing. <laughs> then we get off stage. You still got that weed? Yep. Good. Yeah. Time to pass out. Uh huh. It's home in Slovenia. <laughs> you can't spell Slovenia without love. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so speaking about travel, you've obviously stayed in a shit ton of hotel rooms. How do you feel about triangle toilet paper? Do you mean when they first fold yep. the yeah. at the beginning? Yep. That means I'm staying somewhere where they at least go to the trouble of doing that. But, but it's got to be at least fucking three-ply. <laughs> so do you use that triangle or do you rip it off? I rip it off because I don't trust it. Right? I don't know where that's been. Right? It looks like the end of someone's tie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hate that triangle. No, and I don't need the fucking mint that's on the pillow either. Right. <laughs> do they still do that anymore? It depends if you're at a holiday inn. You're like, I'm glad you went through the trouble. When I used to smoke, I'd be like, fine, but just give me a balcony. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So have you ever had a a stalker or an extreme super fan that was insane? That's Burke, not me. <laughs> um, I've had people who 
maybe after a couple of beers would follow you around to the festival and annoy the shit out of you. Uh-huh. But the thing is, if they're fans of yours and they're super fans, you got to be really careful about that because <laughs> they're only doing it because they really like what you're doing, yeah. but they don't realize that they're being annoying while they're doing it. Yeah. yeah. You know, especially some of the Germans after a few beers. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't go, I'm not on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever the fucking flavor of the month is. So, um, I am not in the arena where those people can pester me. Mm-hmm. And I, when I say pester, I don't mean, I don't mean that in a derogatory way. Yeah. Maybe I do. <laughs> but when I was selling my like, base on eBay, I had to communicate with people like, oh, you know, well, uh, what condition is the base in? And some people knew it was Danny Loker and there was a guy from New Zealand who would ask wise ass sarcastic questions. And I'd be like, well, I'm glad I'm not on this shit all the time because <laughs> there's people who obviously, you know, oh, I've got Danny Looker's attention and I'm going to be like, oh, it was, uh, I forgot the exact questions, but it was like questions about the base, and, you know, like, did you ever play naked in it or something like that? <laughs> I'm making that up now, but it's the general vibe of the fucking wise assness. Uh, yeah. And I'm like, I'm so glad I don't have to deal with this on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> yeah, it's but, training. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But no, I mean, I've had, uh, let's say, things that have made me uncomfortable because when Nuke, not Nuke, when Brutal Truth played a festival in Italy in 2007 in the middle of the summer, and I was walking around the crowd with Burke drinking, and some guy came up and went on his knees and fucking prayed to me and then kissed my sneakers repeatedly and you know kissing your feet and <laughs> did you peel your glove off and swat him away <laughs> i was just weirded out and i'm like you know i'm flattered in a way but it's also just yeah. kind of like dude i'm just a musician and i'm just I a play, guy yeah i play music because <laughs> i enjoy playing music and you know that's not necessary really yeah and i've had people you know tell me i'm god and you know i'm that kind of stuff weirds me out because I'm not an egotistical person. I'm yeah. not like, oh, thank you. You know, just I appreciate the fact that I have a normal ego. Mm-hmm. I know I'm a talented bass player and songwriter, and I've been on lots of albums that people really appreciate, but that doesn't mean I'm better than anybody or mm-hmm. gives me an excuse to be snooty and superior. So, you know, that could be a conflict, but um, no, not stalkers. It's like, as you know, pointed out i'm not on the internet where people can reach me easily all the time mm-hmm. which is how i like it yeah and that's also because i'm just a lazy stoner <laughs> it's not because i don't want to be in the internet because i'm a rock star i just don't want to deal with people i don't <laughs> care you know you know where to find me if you know me you can i got a fucking a couple of weeks ago there were these nuclear assault baseball trading cards back in the 80s a whole bunch of thrash bands did, did, had this thing where this company did trading cards, just like baseball cards. So you had one with just you on it and one with just your band. Nuclear Assault one, there was a picture of all of us with a little thing on the back with info. Blah, blah, blah. Nuclear Assault was formed. A couple of weeks ago, we got a thing in the mail. Just some dude had somehow got my address somewhere off the internet, reverse blah, 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 because I didn't know him. And sent a self-addressed stamped envelope and the trading card and said, I'm a big fan of yours. Could you please sign this and send it back to me? And I did. But I'm like, how this dude got my address? Right. Yeah. 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 
Huh. Yeah, it's a little creepy. But, you know, I sent it back to him. I haven't heard from him since. And whatever. People have ways of doing things. But I don't put myself out there. Mm-hmm. And I'm not one of those people who has to be in the internet talking about this or that and being the center of attention and FaceTime before there was FaceTime. <laughs> I just, I don't care. I'm not part of that, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm flattered if people like what I do, but I don't pursue it. I I envy that attitude. <laughs> that's, that's that's cool. Yeah. So, yeah. And actually, I'm going to turn one of my questions into a statement because you kind of covered it, and I think it's kind of obvious. And we kind of talked about it last time too. So you found like this balance between like com- being confident as a musician. And like not turning into like a dick about it, but you still catch people's attention, which I think is very interesting and organic because a lot of people have like these huge personas or like these, they become different people on stage and you just, you're who you are. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, that's one of those things that's even hard for me to comment because it's, it's hard to step outside yourself and analyze what you do or what you are, unless you run three hits of acid or something. <laughs> but um, no, I understand because uh, I'm, you know, me. I'm unvarnished. I'm just who I am. I don't have a persona. Um, I'm not, you know, Phil Anselmo or whoever, you know. Um, and the reason I straddle that line the way I do is because I just don't really care. I don't think about things. I don't... I mean, the whole reason I've gotten away with what I do... When I left Nuclear Assault and formed Brutal Truth, some people would have said, like, what kind of career move is that? You're going to go play extreme... You're going to play grindcore being known for thrash metal. And I didn't go, hmm... Maybe I shouldn't do this. I'm going to go play this wild, fucking crazy blast beat music. I'm the thrash metal dude. Maybe I shouldn't do that. What will people think? (laughs) I don't give a shit. Yeah. Just do what the fuck I want. And I think that has carried me through what I've done. And that's why I've gotten where I am today. Or however you want to phrase that. Yeah. Just uh, having a basic confidence, as you pointed out. But... Not to the point where uh, it's some contrived thing or whatever. Yeah. It's just knowing what you're doing. Like, we did the Fistful of Metal record. I didn't know a lot about recording music. I trusted the producer, who was the drummer of the Rods, Carl Kennedy. You know, I want you to play with the pick. Okay. And, excuse me. Earlier nuclear assault recordings, still not fully confident in the studio. It didn't take long for me to, I wouldn't say master, but learn what I want my shit to sound like without needing somebody else's help. And just tell an engineer who still has the technological technological, um, skills I don't have, I want this to sound like this. Mm. I don't need a producer. A producer comes in the studio to craft and form the sound. And there comes a point where you don't need that anymore. Yeah. You know what you want your shit to sound like. Mm-hmm. You don't need to pay some guy fucking 
$5,000 a week to come in and go, oh, make it more like that. Yep. I know what I want my shit to sound like. I have my vision, and I roll with it. And that's part of the same thing, the recording techniques. Yeah. Where you reach a point where you're independent, and you no longer need someone to craft your shit. You know exactly what you want your shit to sound like. And obviously now when I do home recording, yeah, there's nobody else there anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I know exactly what the fuck I'm doing. Do you think a lot of your fan base followed you to Brutal Truth? I might have lost a couple of people that were thrash dudes. But uh, you can't concern yourself with that. There were a lot of people who did appreciate the fact they could see that I have my independent streak, or whatever you want to call it. And people respect that, that you're doing whatever the hell you want to do. Um, there were some people, yeah, that might have been thrown off by that whole thing. And just, you know, more of the people who maybe the heaviest band they liked was Nuclear Assault, but they were more into like Megadeth and Overkill. Yeah, yeah. But there might have been people who liked Nuclear Assault, but also liked fucking DRI and Agnostic Front and yep. fucking Cannibal Corpse or something. Mm -hmm. And they followed me to Brutal Truth and enjoyed it immensely. But it's hard to say. You'd have to ask them. All right. It's time for a disemboweling party with Exit 13. When you record at home, do you go direct? Oh, I have to. I live in an apartment complex. <laughs> I mix with headphones. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. You know, I just overcompensate. I know if I mix it with headphones, put a little, a little extra low end on mm -hmm. because your tiny little headphone speakers aren't giving you that big studio monitor thing. So mm -hmm. I know how to get around that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have all creative control. And because uh, like I said, I'm not a control freak, but I know what I want. Yeah. yeah. And I don't need anyone to fucking tell me anything else. You use a sans amp, don't you? I use a sans amp when I play live, mm -hmm. but there's all sorts of killer plugins yeah. I can use. Native instruments, guitar rig, I use when I do home recording, mm -hmm. like all these SOD quarantine things. Mm -hmm. When the SOD quarantine thing, quarantine thing started, my technology for recording evolved quickly. When we did the first one with March of the SOD, we just had a little practice amp, and Heather filmed me with the phone 
and the audio and video were both coming out of this little amp and it didn't work out well when that came out there was no bass on it so i said hmm i think the thing to do is record a separate bass track and then lip sync the video mm. Mm. first time i did that when we did chromatic death i used a sans amp plugged through that and into the computer the next song we did which was the discharge covers of randy blythe i took the sans amp out and just used the plugins because i think i might have left my bass at rehearsal and used my other bass and i didn't have my distortion <laughs> pedal i said what should i do now i'll just use this fucking ironically enough the sound i use in the plugins is the the rammstein distortion oh yeah yeah i know that plugin yeah yeah because i use guitar pedals so uh -huh. i can sound extremely distorted but uh it's doesn't sound anything like the band Ramstein. No. <laughs> <laughs> huh, that's cool. I wasn't going to ask about any gear questions, but I'm glad I did. Yeah, ask whatever. I don't care. You want to go into the Dio documentary? Sure. So you kind of mentioned, you touched on it last time, that you had just done a, a bit for a Dio documentary. What, did, what is that about? Obviously about Dio, but... Well, it's about Dio, who is a visionary, a dude who, uh, not quite, you can get it, if you want to get a backup, I'll be ready for it in five minutes. <laughs> Help yourself to whatever's in there. Yeah. Um, I was involved in this Dio documentary, and I'm probably the only dude who's an underground dude. I think there's people like Jack Black and Rudy Sarzo and other people like that who are much more, who you would have called as contemporaries in it. I was drawn into it because the dudes filming the documentary, <clears throat> I'm going to take a sip here because my voice just okay. cracked. <laughs> the guys making the Dio movie, one of them is an old, old friend of mine, Sean Pelletier, who is an old friend of mine from Maine. Back in 1994, we were breaking Rich into Brutal Truth, our second drummer. Our guitar player at the time, Brent McCarty, as he was known. His sister had a summer house Lake Winnipesaukee in New Hampshire, where What About Bob was made. Oh, yeah. It was never used in the winter because it's miserable in New Hampshire in the winter. But we were getting ready to go on that tour with Macabre and Pungent, and we were writing stuff for Need to Control, and we were breaking Rich Hulk, our new drummer, in. So we took two months and froze our asses off in the middle of New Hampshire, New England, you know, in a house where it was heated by propane tanks that would freeze up and yeah. fuck up, and you'd wake up and it would be fucking 10 degrees in the middle of the house. Jesus. You know, and uh, so we were in touch pre-internet, I don't remember how, with uh, people from Maine. They were like, you mean Brutal Truth's fucking working on shit in New Hampshire? That's a two-hour drive. Of course, you got to go through the tundra. It's like being in Siberia. Yeah. Every fucking mile on the highway is a risk of fucking going into a ditch and dying upside down in a car. <laughs> but um, brutal and real. Um, and they would come down for a weekend, and Sean Pelletier was one of these dudes. So we always kept in touch, and he ended up getting into like, the movie industry. He made that fucking Pentagram movie, Bobby Liebling. I don't yep. know if you ever oh, saw yeah. that. Yep. And... Um, he got in touch a few months ago and said, dude, we're fucking doing a documentary about Dio, and I thought you would be perfect for it. You'd be the only kind of underground dude because 
you have the same spirit as him. You have somebody who's just done what he wanted. Fucking, I can't put this on the, you know, the full on. Yeah. Um, because in the 90s, if you remember, when fucking grunge and new metal were destroying everything we were trying to do, people like Dio didn't give a shit. He just kept doing what he was doing and mm -hmm. ignored it. Mm -hmm. So my participation in that movie was partly because I was of similar ilk that I just did what I want no matter what was cool and just fucking played music no matter what that form that music took. So I ended up being the underground credibility dude in the Dio movie. Oh, that's cool. You know, and because it was the same kind of pattern where you're just fucking, irregardless of whatever's going on and whatever's cool at the time, you just fucking follow your vision. Yep. And that's what he did. And that's what I do. And that was my connection to it. Plus, the dude, the director, Damien Fenton, he plays in a band called Pissgrave. So that should give you a clue that, <laughs> you know, there were people making the movie that were on a level with me as far as in the underground. Yeah. So it was a natural fit in that way. So I uh, did my uh, parts for that at the bar at the Record Archive when we were still in whatever phase one or whatever where oh like, that's cool the event space was not open so i was able to do the recording for that because nobody was allowed in the bar area yeah and i don't know was that like a month ago or something um and uh participated in that and i'm it's gonna be quite interesting when that comes out because uh of course, it's the record archive, and it was still closed then, and we still had all these extra beers that were going to expire, so we just started drinking. <laughs> and, you know, I might have said a couple of unflattering things about Ozzy because it was a Dio movie, and at the ends of the Ozzy era in Black Sabbath, you could tell he was kind of losing it and just like running around and clapping like a seal and everything. <laughs> and she's probably going to end up seeing that if they keep everything I said, which they might not, because there was 45 minutes of me... That's great. And if anything, I'll probably be good for the outtakes. <laughs> well, there you go, Mark Rapone. <laughs> he wanted us to address that. Because he go, said he's, he's been giving you shit about it. <laughs> well, yeah, Mark was uh, too shy to commit a watch when we were doing it. Or maybe he was just working. <laughs> I saw Kevin pop his face in. <laughs> Have you heard any of the, uh, the old Dio stuff? Um, like the doo-wop era stuff? No, I have not. That's uh, interesting. It's pretty cool, actually. He was good at it. I mean, it's not my favorite style of music, but he was definitely talented in a lot of areas. No, I've not heard any of his stuff like that. Um, I've only even heard a little bit of Elf. Mm -hmm. So, But I saw the Black and Blue Tour in 1981 at Madison Square Garden with Black Sabbath and Blurister Colt on the Heaven and Hell Tour which was actually the show where Scott looked at me and said, you got to go back to playing bass. Mm -hmm. And that's why I ended up playing bass back in Anthrax mm -hmm. because we were right in front of Geezer. Another funny story about that show is that when SOD toured Europe in 99, we had a sound man named George, the older dude. George, fucking Greek dude. A lot of Greek dudes named George. <laughs> Trey Isaacsoth is one of those guys. <laughs> um, his real name is George, I believe. But... 
you know, Greek guy named George. What are you going to do? <laughs> and uh, we were at the, we were in the Netherlands. It was a festival we were playing. Where later I got drunk with a mortal, and um, we were sitting on the bus, just bored in the afternoon. I was talking with George, and for some reason it came up where I said. I saw a Black Sabbath. I might have had the shirt on. I don't know. I saw a Black Sabbath. The Blurs to Cold, nineteen eighty one, in Madison Square Garden. And he goes, "I mixed that show." So he was the sound man for oh, Black wow. Sabbath oh, of that show. Wow! So that was in nineteen eighty one, and this is nineteen ninety nine. We're having this conversation. So how strange is it that eighteen years later we realized that we were in the same room? Yeah. But I was just a kid in the eighth row. And he was back at the mixing board. Yeah. And 18 years later, he would be mixing my band. That's crazy. That's yeah. wild. Yeah. Yeah, just one of those fucking weird, you know, who would have thought? Yeah. Small, small world kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's cool. All right. Perpetual conversion. How was your book publishing experience? That was a unique experience because although I've made many records, so I'm used to being on something that's mass marketed and released and put out. This was almost like putting out a solo record because, which I've never done because it was all focused on me and I'm not just one fourth of a band. So having a whole spotlight on you was kind of unnerving. Yeah, but it was also had similarities to the music industry as far as finding a label it's the same thing as finding a publishing company yeah you have to find somebody who's interested that wants to release it and get it out to people that want to grab it and negotiating and finding people interested who want to do that so it was definitely a learning experience because we had to go through a few publishers to finally get it released or put out or published which would be the right word for a book but even now, uh, Bazillion Points, who finally ended up publishing the book, did not express interest in doing another run for whatever reason. And I have a lot of people asking me. Including us. Include, I was going to say, like you guys, <laughs> you know, which is great, which I you know, appreciate. But... Uh, when is that book going to be available? And, you know, I saw it on fucking Amazon for 500 bucks yeah. or 800 bucks, which is ridiculous. But, you know, people just make up their own prices. Yeah. So let's see if I can just get this for it. Yeah. But um, the author, Dave Hofer, and I have been trying, maybe not that hard, but trying to uh, find someone else who wants to swoop in and put it out. All right. If you were stranded on an island... And you could only take three recordings with you. What would they be? Three recordings. I know that I left that broad on like purpose. <sighs> so you know, let me have a sip of beer and pause. Okay, this. all right. It would probably be Black Sabbath, Paranoid, mm. Slayer, Rain and Blood. Mm. And then it would be a toss-up between Napalm Death Scum and Dark Throne Blaze in a Northern Sky. Love it. So there you go. And if you were stranded on an island with like a group of people, what do you think your job would be on that island? (laughs) (laughs) 
My job on that island would be to find somebody to roll me a joint. Because <laughs> I can't. No, seriously. Um, what would be my job on that island stranded with a group of people? Like, would you be making a shelter? Would you be no. building fires? No. Hunting and gathering, picking berries. <laughs> I'd probably be picking the berries that would make you trip. I don't know. Um, yeah, I'd probably just lay around and find a breeze. <laughs> All right, cool. Yeah. I would make somebody fucking, uh, you know, like, you know, the Roman gods where they would fucking wave the fucking thing. Banana up. leaves. Yeah. <laughs> I'd make somebody do that, not because I'm haughty, but because I'm lazy. You just run hot all the time. Yeah, I do. It's horrible. <laughs> do you have a least favorite style of music? New metal. Yeah. I think that not only because the music was boring, but the sociological aspect of a bunch of middle-class suburban mall rats trying to be street and yeah. you know ghetto and it was very false and contrived and it was very embarrassing in the 90s if you were at an airport going on tour i'm in, I'm in brutal truth and i'm going off to fucking vienna or somewhere but i'm at the airport bar in newark and sitting there chatting with your stranger next to you oh yeah what are you doing oh i'm fucking i'm off to uh vienna i'm going on tour what do you do i play metal oh you mean like corn and limp biscuit? Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, well, I'm gonna, I gotta take a piss, dude. I'll be back. <laughs> Just go somewhere else. Yeah. Um, music that misrepresented what I did on a mass scale um, was problematic because I'm proud of what I do. Yeah. And I'm proud of the metal scene, the real metal scene, and to see it get mischaracterized like that you know and fuck Sharon Osbourne too she took Ozfest and got all those Papa Roach fucking bands because yeah. Yeah. she charged them fucking a hundred thousand dollars each by the way to go on those Ozfest tours what? yeah they were buy on tours wow and the labels had no problem forking that over so those bands could get fucking you know these how do you think these bands like Linkin Park and all that played in front of all those fucking people back then it's because the label paid for them to do it because it was a buy-on because she saw that, you know, these bands are the fucking hit of the month. Never mind if they were true metal or not because mm -hmm. that doesn't figure into the accounting. Yeah. yeah. So I would get more offended by music that misrepresented what I was doing and made me explain shit or just say, fuck off, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Yeah. Yep. You know? It's like, no, it's not fucking... Limp Biscuit, it's fucking Dark Throne, or, you know, <sighs> Immolation. Yeah. Or something else that was the true, the true cult. And so, yeah, music I don't like is music that would be a pretender to what I was doing. Because I had to deal with those kind of mischaracterizations. Yep. Politely at an airport. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying, Fuck you, man. You don't know what I'm, you know, I'm, do I'm thinking it yeah. very hard. Yeah. But um, as a civil member of society, I would go, nah, 
we're really more, a little more underground and kind of noisier and faster than that. And I'll see you later. And I got to take a piss. Yeah. (laughs) And I think they're calling my flight, which is five hours later. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I think we kind of talked about this off air a little bit. I don't, I don't know that you mentioned it, but, um, do you have a, a sub sub genre of grindcore that you don't like? Um, I guess I would say stuff that was of the misogynistic kind of mm-hmm. thing, where grindcore started as a combination of death metal and hardcore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, napalm shit like that. It was politically infused. And it ended up being something where as long as you had a blast beat, it was grindcore. And what that turned into was bands that were influenced more by stuff like Cannibal Corpse. I'm not taking anything against Cannibal Corpse. Yeah. Cannibal Corpse yeah, was yeah, just yeah. like going to a movie and watching someone's head get ripped off. Everybody burst into applause and they were the musical version of that. <laughs> what happens is when that becomes... How do I describe this? When it just, um, I'm going to try to say this eloquently. When that whole vibe becomes something where there's no escape from it and it becomes very insular and um, they just take that whole vibe, you know, like fucked with a knife and cannibal corpse songs, and they take that and go too far and there's no other thinking, there's no other outside influence from it, then it becomes more and more brutal, and eventually it became, like we were talking about before, you know, like bands that their only thing was, they're a bunch of 17-year-old kids that never got laid, and they're just fucking, it's kind of like incel fucking death metal, where it was more like frustrated teenagers talking about chopping up women because it was more... You know, oh, that bitch didn't fuck me last night. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to write a song about that and blah, blah, blah. We were talking about this with um, English James at work because we got all these CDs in and it was all that shit. And every fucking album, every CD was just fucking, you know, torturing women, blah, blah, blah. And we were like, it's just... 16-year-old kids who are frustrated and they haven't got laid and they're just... Um, they took a genre and they turned it into something that it was never intended to be. I agree. It was mm-hmm. an offshoot. Same thing with Nazi black metal. They took a genre that I hold close to my fucking black yep. heart. And they and tarnished they it. Turned it. They fucking tarnished it. Yep. And fucking turned it into something. That some none fucking, of us believe except for like this fucking small percentage. A shitty little fork in the yes. road that gets all the attention. Yep. And I get offended because they take something that, you know, this is more about black metal, but they take something that is fucking, I treasure and fucking spoil it. Shit all over it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the same thing with porn grind. Yep. We feel the exact same way. Yeah. And they take something and they fucking ruin it and spoil it and it offends me. And then Grindcore gets the shitty name. Because right. of this sub mm-hmm. genre. Because they think everything's about fucking murdering prostitutes. Where right. event where originally it was about, you know, change. 
Same thing with pop punk. Blink-182, you know, with fucking Tracy Lords on the fucking cover, putting her glove on. That's not punk rock. Punk rock was discharge. Punk rock was fucking nasty music about fucking social change. Yeah. Not yep. fucking melodic bullshit and whatever. <laughs> if I want to hear melody, I'll fucking... There's only one punk rock band that's allowed to have melody. Maybe one or two. Mostly it's the Misfits, because they sang about fucking chopping heads off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you could hum along to it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, I don't know if this is worth exploring, but like, I, I've always thought of, so like the porno grind thing, most people are against that, how derogatory that is towards women. But when you go into like gangster rap, say, that's very, not in the same way, but it's very derogatory towards women. But that seems to be, like, so accepted, and, like, a lot of women love that stuff. But it's very, like, disrespectful. Not about chopping them up, you know. Or, you but know. just about she's a hoe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but these women who understand that that's not about them. Like, I remember seeing an old fucking, you know, Morton Downey or Jenny Jones or Ricky Lake or yeah. one of those fucking shows that had those people on. Yeah. They had iced tea on and they had fucking iced tea's chick on. And what she said was, when he's talking about bitch, he ain't talking about me. <laughs> and I thought that was fucking pretty, yeah. you know, like, that made sense. Yeah. You know? Um, there may be, I think there's chicks I know who are, like, what's her name? Melanie? Mel, the chick who played in uh, Last Days of Humanity. Okay, this girl in Germany who played in porn grind bands. Because she's like, they're not talking about me. Mm-hmm. I know these guys are just fucking kids. They're just fucking around and mm-hmm. just writing offensive, obnoxious lyrics. Mm-hmm. She goes, you know, Danny, you're an SOD. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and I said, I know. She goes, I love this music. You know, I'll fucking... There was a chick who played in the band Clit Eater. From the Netherlands. <laughs> She'll tell you the same thing. She goes, they're not talking about me. They're just fucking having a laugh, being as brutal as possible. And it doesn't offend me because I just think it's funny and stupid. Mm-hmm. All, All right. right. All right. Can we like just enjoy our beers? Yeah. I, I want to ask him about the Iron Maiden thing. Though. Okay. All right. All right. This so, will be the last question. All right. So last time we we started to talk about Iron Maiden a little bit. Um, He's already bored. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's a coincidental yawn. I was thinking about getting my foot bitten 12 hours ago. <laughs> so I think we talked about how your favorite singer for Maiden was Paul Diano. My, my question was, two-part question. Um, oh, now it's two parts. Two parts. <laughs> I've, I've built onto the last question. That's okay. Um, what, what do you think Maiden would have looked like if Paul stayed in the band if a anything with a, fat, a band with a fat dude <laughs> do you think do you think it would have held him back oh it would have held him back um without going into too much personal knowledge of what I have of that situation um I don't think they wanted to uh, he had his uh issues he had his demons mm-hmm. which is you know whenever you say demons you mean drugs but uh yeah it was almost like uh like when Anthrax got Joey, they kind of took a step up because he was hit higher notes and everything like that. That's not the best comparison because Neil hit high notes too. But um, 
I think they wouldn't have worked out with him uh, being an Iron Maiden and going on to what they did. I think Bruce was a... When I say a better vocalist, he was a different vocalist. Paul was, you know, he hit his high notes and everything like that, which is which, what you wanted back then. But mm-hmm. he was more of a street urchin type dude. Mm-hmm. Paul Diano was like the dude who would be sitting outside the show fucking drinking cider in the fucking corner. You know, where Bruce Dickinson <laughs> was more like a professional vocalist. Yeah. 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 You know, and it almost goes back to what if Danny had joined Metallica? It just wouldn't have worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's certain things that the ingredients weren't going to mesh. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what it was with them. Thank you so much for entertaining all of our questions. No worries. Hanging Thank out. You for, uh, you know, continuing to promote and be enthusiastic about what we do. Thank you very much. And yeah. we love what you do. And it's a pleasure to promote. Cool. Cheers. 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 Another fantastic chat with the one and only Dan Looker. Yep, a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, so I say we wrap this episode up with a Nocturnal Hellstorm song. All right. What are we going to hear? The Huntress. Until next time, stay safe. Stay healthy. Wash your hands. Drink your Ovaltine. And don't be an asshole.
<laughs> it's your fault. It's not my fault. No, the the question Remember about pussy power. The, uh, <laughs> mm. Yes, dear. Vagina victory. <laughs> I just made that up. 